Hi. My name is Vanita Jones. I'm part of the teaching team here at Women in the Word. I'm so proud of all you very brave women. You stuck it out this week as you studied some more laws. And now you know what to do with your oxen. And you know what to do with that big pit in your backyard. I say fill it with water and call it a pool. But you remember last week, Shelly walked us through the Big Ten. I'm not talking about the football conference in college. I'm talking about the Ten Commandments. And she told us that they became the foundation of all the laws that were going to follow afterwards. And there were to be like 600 plus laws that would follow the Ten Commandments. And they would be written down in the Book of the Covenant, in the scrolls of the Covenant. God knew that these two million plus people were going to need something to keep them in order as they crossed this desert and they conquered the promised land. He knew their needs and he knew their human nature. And so he knew he was going to have to come up with more specific laws than just the Ten Commandments for them. You know, it kind of reminds me a little bit of when my kids were little bitties and we would go to visit my gra uh, their grandmother. We call her Granville. And at the time, Granville lived in a really nice house with really nice breakables. <laughs> Even at this level. See, the breakables in our house were at this level. And so in that five-minute ride from our house to Granville's house, Dad would be busy driving, and I would start the Ten Commandments of the Jones family. <laughs> and at first, they were very general. They would be things like, you know, no running in the house. Sounds good. Use your good table manners. Use your inside voice. Don't touch the breakables. We had all the big ones, the big general things. But then if you flash forward a few years or even a few months, because of incidents that happened on our trip to Granville's house, though we would have to have a few more specific laws. We couldn't just say, don't touch the breakables. They would sound like things like, don't run through the house with your clothes off. <laughs> I mean, we had to say that because it happened one time. And when we, we couldn't just say, mind your table manners, we had to include, and that includes belching. Even if your brother's giving you two thumbs up from the other end of the table, it's not okay. And then later on, we had to add, don't touch the breakables. That includes the carousels, the carousel horses that are up in the, the guest bedroom that are very important, expensive porcelain horses. And even when you spin it, they fly off. We had to include that. Don't touch the breakables. The porcelain horses upstairs. So they got more specific. It was just like the Israelites. They had the Ten Commandments, but then God was giving them these, these specific laws that they were going to have to follow, and it would help them to know how to, work, to live day to day. Now, it makes me think that some of these very specific ones were there for a reason, just like ours were. You know, it's kind of like when you buy the, the box of shoes at DSW and you tear into the box and you see the little packet, the little packet of gel balls. It says, Don't, do not eat. I think there's a reason for that. Because someone thought, oh, I got candy with my shoes and they ate them. And now there has to be a law that you put a warning label on them. I think it's the same thing. Things happened, laws were gonna have to be made, be more specific. And he knew that because of their sinful nature, he would have to make these laws to help them maintain peace and unity in their community. Now I know studying this Mosaic law and this covenant, all these laws, it's not easy. 
And I'm sure there were a couple times as you started reading them, you thought, what does this have to do with me at all? I mean, I know. I studied it a lot. And it crossed my mind many times. Really, what does this have to do with me? I don't have a donkey. I don't have an oxen. And I really don't have a slave. And the only pit I have, we filled it with water. And when we were good enough, we put a fence around our pool so that the neighbor's oxen couldn't get into it. <laughs> so really, what does this have to do with me at all? But see, even though these don't pertain to us, some of them, the big laws, the big 10, they apply to all of us. But when we look at these specific laws, you know what we see? We see what is important to God. And likewise, because it's important to God, it should be important to all of us as well. You know, we learned last week that God cares about his relationship with him, the vertical relationships that Shelley talked about, and that he cares about our relationships with others. And these were the horizontal relationships that Shelley talked about. This week, we continued on with specific laws, and we started with laws of restitution. Not sure what's making that noise. Um, I want to look at the first few verses of Exodus 22 with me, and I'm just going to read, I'm not going to read all these laws, trust me. For sake of time, we're going to have to just pick and choose. I'm just going to read the first four, starting in chapter 22. It says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he, may, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun is risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. See, these laws of restitution were just basic property laws. And they granted justice and compensation to all the victims. And for damages or losses that they would receive. So each offense, the offender was to pay restitution. And that required amount that was to be paid would be related to the nature of the crime. And it would be paid in multiples of what the loss was, the value of the loss. Now, if you looked up the definition of the restitution this week, like I had you do in your questions, you saw that restitution is the act of restoring something to its original owner. It was to make something right again. So it's a, payment, a repayment for something that's been lost or damaged. And if you glance back over these verses, like I did, I saw that restitution was used a lot. It was used seven times. And the word, the translation for the Hebrew word for, for uh, restitution is shalom, which is closely related to shalom. But shalom means to make whole or complete. Shalom is the translation of the Hebrew word peace. So it's saying that, that it wasn't just a confession of guilt for the offender to make things right. It was that there was going to be a demand and for an effort on their part to compensate the person for the losses, the one that had been affected by it. By doing this, they weren't just saying, I did wrong, but they were actually causing peace in that relationship. They were restoring the relationship, and it was going to bring unity and peace to their community. Now, these phrases are repeated over and over, and they remind us that because we serve a holy God, a price has to be paid for our sin as well. Look at Galatians 3.23 on your verse sheet. Paul is writing to the Galatians, and he says this. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. 
You know, I read something that said the law of Moses was kind of like the schoolmaster that led people to Christ. It, was, it told them who would be the perfect lamb and that he would be sacrificed for our sin. And Jesus became that all-sufficient, once-and-for-all payment for our sin. So these laws of restitution would help his people understand that there had to be a price paid when they, when they sinned. And it, it showed them that there was no way they could possibly follow all of these laws. Now, the latter part of Exodus 22, starting at the beginning of chapter 23, addresses the laws of social justice. And they're broken down into three major sections. The first five verses talk about laws concerning holiness and purity. Verse 16 and 17 are talking about premarital sex. Now, we know that they're not talking about rape because rape, in, under the Messiah, uh, Mosaic law, it, the penalty was death. And that's not discussed here. So this is premarital sex. And they're saying that the man was to marry the woman. And then in addition to the marrying, he had to pay a price, the bride price, the dowry to the father. But if the father refused to give her in marriage to him, he still had to pay the price, the bride price for her. I think the moral of the story here is that, that premarital sex, it, it, it just has a high price. It has huge consequences, and it's still today. It does today. You know, God places this high value on purity, and our world just doesn't seem to see that. Premarital sex and cohabitation, it's just kind of commonplace. And in fact, if you're the one that speaks out against it, you're kind of backward. Kind of thought, wow, you need to come up to the 21st century. This is what we have to do now. But God still calls us to a life of holiness and purity. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. It says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Just like the Israelites we're called to live this life of holiness and purity. But unlike the Israelites, we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can help us to live a holy and pure life. Now verses 18 through 20 broadly address capital crimes, capital punishment crimes. Um, he'd called them to be holy and to worship him alone. So these laws carried a very high price, the ultimate price, the price of death. And each of these cases mentioned, either one of the, any of these would have made Israel unclean. So even though the death penalty may seem kind of severe for these, it's actually kind of gracious. Because it was God's way of protecting this group of people from all the pagan nations around them. And then we go on to verses 21 and that 23 through chapter, or chapter 23 to verse 9. And it forms a whole new so section of social justice laws. And they almost seem to be presented a little bit different than the others. They presented more like the Ten Commandments. And I say that because there's really not a penalty addressed with them, except in chapter, or in verse 24, it says that God would uh, kill, that he will kill you with the sword. And most likely what they're talking about there is that God actually using Israel's enemies to bring judgment on Israel, not actually him killing them with a sword. So the subject matter changes, and this section of laws encourages a caring attitude toward the poor, needy, and the disenfranchised. God's people are not just called to obey his laws. 
We're called to care for those in need. We're called to meet the needs of others. Look at Proverbs 31, eight through nine. It says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. And James 1.27 says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now we hear a lot about social justice today. You know, it's all over Facebook. There are Twitter feeds about social injustices and there have videos of people in the streets screaming and throwing up signs and, and saying, you know, we... You are not being cared for like we should be and we should take care of these people. And, and, and even the federal government has been forced to bend under the pressure of social justice. But it's really nothing new. It started way back. Way back in Exodus, we're seeing them having to deal with social justice. You know, the world tells us this, that it should be our global mission This is what the world says. It should be our global mission to promote human dignity as we break down barriers between different groups of people. And and their result for that, they say, is that we would live in this world of peace and harmony. Now, as a Christian, I say, yeah, I kind of agree with that. That sounds right. But see, the difference between the two, what the world says and what God tells me, can can be found out when you ask yourself one question. What motivates us in our, in our pursuit of social justice? Because see, the world is telling us that when we break down these barriers and we include all the disenfranchised and everybody, uh, the marginalized people, we're doing it to promote this perfect society right here on earth. It's here and now. There's no eternal perspective in it. But see, when, when God calls us for social justice, he has an eternal perspective in mind. He wants us to love those around us the way he loves us. And he wants us to love them because he loves them. And we're to do it because we're gonna be the hands and feet of Christ for them. You know, when my kids were in high school, their principal, uh, Mr. Naderman, used to tell them all the time. He used to say, when you take care of other people, when you serve others, you're being Jesus with skin. And he said, you have to do that with excellence because you may be the only Jesus someone else ever sees. And if that doesn't make you want to strive for excellence in your serving, nothing will. Look at, and and you need to have a hope, you need to give people the hope of spending eternity with Jesus as you love them. Look at Luke 14 on your verse sheet. Christ has been invited to eat at the house of a prominent Pharisee on the Sabbath, and in true fashion, Christ used this moment as a teachable moment, and he tells him a parable about a great banquet. And he says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And then, if we jump forward to verse 23, we actually find the motivation for it. It says, the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in. And he says this, that my house may be filled. That's why we serve God. That's why we care for the marginalized and the disenfranchised, the poor and the needy, because we want to love them for Christ and we want them, we want to fill Christ's heavenly home for them, with them. You know, I was struck by how many times the word you and your was, um, was 
repeat it over and over. And I had you look at that this last week. I actually counted it was 43 times. So in 19 verses, 43 times, that's like two times a verse. That's a lot. That caused me to look at it totally different than the, the laws about the oxen. It made me look at them and think, these are very personal. These are, he's saying, Vanita, what are you doing? You know, if I end up being the only picture of Jesus that someone else sees, do I really want to be some unfocused, grainy, black and white photo? I want to be this gallery-worthy masterpiece where God's character is in full display and, and you can clearly see all his characteristics, all, everything about God, and you'll know exactly who I'm serving and why I'm serving. That's what we should strive to do. Now, I'm going to admit, studying these laws and studying these, this covenant was not easy, but I once had a very wise and godly woman Deb Haygood, uh, many times I've called her in a panic, like, what do you want me to say about this? And I, she told me from a long time ago, and I've used this over and over, she said, Vanita, go back to that portion of scripture and read it again. And when you read it this time, look at it and ask yourself, what does this tell me about who God is? If you do that, you find something in every single word that God has in his Bible. Go back and say, what does this tell me about who God is? What is his character? And when you do that, you're going to see by that what God desires for us. And I did that, and I saw that God desires these things. He wants us to live peacefully. He wants us to respect others and their property. He wants us to live a pure and holy life. And he wants us to care for the poor and needy. Can you imagine what our world would look like if we actually did this? And I'm not just talking about the pagans, I'm talking about all of us as well. We really truly would have peace and unity in our communities. Now I wanna look back, I'm gonna look on in the next few verses, starting at verse 10. I'm just gonna read the first five in this section. And we're gonna be talking about uh, the Sabbath and the festivals. Um, let me see, I'm gonna start at verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the, and what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work. But on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest. And the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let them be heard on your lips. These section of, this section of laws reminds us that God is a God of order. And he alone is in charge of all time. And so here we are, they're, in, they're unrolling these, the covenant scroll a little further and we're gonna see that God is telling them specifics about the Sabbath and three different festivals. But concerning the Sabbath, he said that this law would say that after six days of labor, you're to rest. And that included the animals, the slaves, and the foreigners. Everyone was supposed to rest. And then if you take that six on and one off theme a little bit further, these laws were applied um, for the plowing and gathering in the fields for six years. And the seventh year, they were supposed to let the, they were supposed to leave the land alone, not plow and gather it, and it would let their land rest. Now, this was, 
This was God's way of saying, I've given you great laws to raise lots of healthy, wonderful crops for six years. And that seventh year, I want you to trust me. This is gonna be a test of your faith. This is gonna be a test of your obedience. You know, actually, some farmers actually follow this form of, of law still today. In fact, if you wanna follow it and read about it, it's on, you can Google following. There is an article on there by a Jewish man that is like 500,000 pages long, and he goes into why it should still be done today. It's, it's really kind of interesting, but modern-day farmers kind of use a little bit twisted uh, law of this, a little bit different. They don't take that one year off. What they do is they rotate their crops because certain crops will put things into the soil and other crops need that. So they'll, they'll plant, after a period of time, they'll plant another crop that kind of complements it. So this law is still kind of being followed and it helps keep God's land balanced, the soil balanced. So the six on, one off theme found in the laws of the Sabbath provided rest for the Israelites. But not only them, it provided land, their, their land rest as well. And as he ordered their year, he set aside three festivals that encouraged national unity and devotion to God. And they were the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which we've studied before. And that was to celebrate their deliverance from Egypt. There was the Feast of the Harvest. And this would be a celebration of God's provision for them. And the Festival of the Ingathering, this is also the, could be called the Festival of the Booths or the uh, Festival of the Tabernacle. And these would celebrate God's salvation for them. And in between there, these laws also talk about how they're, they're supposed to handle the specifics of the blood and the fat and the leaven. And it, it lays it all out for them. You know, all three of these festivals point to God's salvation because they ultimately point us to Christ. Listen to what Dr. Phil Riken says about these festivals pointing to Christ. He wrote a book about Exodus, and I'm going to read it when I'm done here. I think it'll be really, really interesting. He says this, the three major, three major Old Testament feasts were rich in their teachings about salvation. Jesus Christ is a savior that God always planned to send. So already in the Old Testament, he gave his people experiences would help them and us understand the meaning of their salvation. He was saying that Jesus is the source of their deliverance. He's the source of their sanctification. He's the first fruits of, all of, his res of our resurrection. He's the Lord of the harvest, and he's the water of life and the sacrifice of our sin. He said, and then he goes on to say this. He says, this is the gospel of Moses recorded in Exodus 23. I thought that was so cool. This is like one of the gospels way back in the Old Testament pointing us to Jesus. Now, I want to briefly explain that very unusual part of the last verse, verse 19. It just seemed like kind of an afterthought. Um, it felt like it should have said, oh, by the way, before I forget, you know, don't boil, boil your young goat in the mother's milk. I'm like, what? It's like, huh? That's when I called Deb. It's like, what? What does that have to do with anything? She goes, Vanita, go back. And she said, what does this tell us about God? And I did. And it told us a couple things. It tells us that, you know, God doesn't want you to use something that's to be used as a source of life, as a source of death. But it also was God's way of prohibiting them from partaking in a fertility ritual that the pagans would use the mother's milk to boil the young goat. He didn't want them to have anything to do with them. He's saying, you're going to trust me. I'm the creator of all your livestock. I will be the one that makes the your livestock fertile. 
not any of these pagan rituals. So again, why do we study these laws? Because the law drives us to Jesus and Jesus empowers us to obey. And then Jesus empowers us to obey and then we, we drive us back to Jesus, the law does, and then he drives us to obey. He gives us the power to do that. That's why we study these laws. We can't keep God's laws. But you know, there was one who lived the life we couldn't, we couldn't live. And he died the death we should have died. And he did that so we could be called the children of God. He did it for us. It was Jesus. He obeyed and he died for all of us lawbreakers. And because of that, because of that, he's in us. His Holy Spirit is within us. And because of that, we can glorify his name in just in our ordinary daily lives, in everything that we do. I wanna continue on reading, and we're gonna go into Exodus 23. Now in this chapter, you, it's probably gonna be easier for you to just listen, because I'm gonna be skipping around and kinda hitting the high points in here. Um, there are three main areas in this, and it's the section entitled, Conquest of Canaan Promised. And there were three main areas. The first main area that we see is that they needed to trust in God's victory. And, and I found some verses. It's actually verses 20 through 23 and 27 through 21. And I'm just going to read them to you. It says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to, the, to the, all the ites, the Amorites, the Hittites, I will blot them out. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their back to you. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out all the ites before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest that land becomes desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you've increased and possessed the land. And I will set your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. God's saying, you know, this victory is mine. I've got this. Just trust in my victory. And he tells him, I'm gonna send an angel to go before you. And, and he's not talking about one of these plump little cute angel cherubs that we see on the, on the clouds playing a harp and with, the, with the, the arrows. It's nothing like that. He's talking about a very different type of angel. Theologians even offer uh, that there are several possibilities, but the main one is that this is actually the big A. This is big A angel. It's pre-incarnate Christ. He sent Jesus to go before them. And there are two main reasons they came to this conclusion. is because he said, my name is in him, which would point us to Christ. And he says he has the authority to forgive sin, which would mean it would have to be Christ. So I think we can agree that God sent the big A angel. He was pre-incarnate Jesus, and he was going to protect the Israelites and ensure their victory as they conquered the land. He was gonna be like their holy bodyguard. He would go out before them and he would strike their enemies, fear into their enemies. And the Israelites only had to trust and obey all his commands. It's just like us. We only need to trust in God's victory. You know, as far as our salvation, that's the ultimate battle. He's already won that. 
I mean, if he can go and fight that battle and win it, can't we trust him with all these little battles that go on in our lives? Now, I'm not saying we need to be passive and just step back and say, oh, God's taking care of that. But we need to know that we're not fighting alone. He goes ahead of us. He goes before us. And he works out the details as we fight these little battles. We only need to be in prayer and study his word, obey his word. And then we just rest in his strength. Look at Ephesians 6.10. It says, finally, after you've done all this stuff, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We're to be strengthened by his strength as we fight our battles. Now, the next main subject in this portion of Exodus 23 is that the Israelites would need to obey God's commands. I just want to read real quick some of the different ones I saw. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. We're talking about the angel. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, you shall not bow down to the gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break down their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God. You shall make no covenant with them or their gods. You shall not dwell in their land lest they make you sin against me. For if they serve their God, it will surely snare you. That's how they would obey. He gave them two major demands here. Just two. He says, listen, obey to me and to the angel. And don't worship the gods of Canaan. Not only don't worship them, smash them down, destroy them. You know, as for us, we should never, never compromise in giving God our complete worship. We should do everything we can to distance ourselves from the idols in our lives that steal our, the attention from God. And, and you know what? Sometimes it's really hard to identify those things. Even the, some really good things can become godlike things in your life as they take over your heart and take your focus away from God. You know, I read something that said that a great way to know if something has become an idol in your life is this. When you sin to get it, or when you sin when it's taken away. That would tell you if that's become an idol. Now, the third subject, it's God's blessings for the Israelites' obedience. And as the Israelites trusted and obeyed, God was going to, he promised he was going to bless them. He, he promised them Plenty of food, plenty of water, good health, large families, long life. And most of all, he promised him that land that he had promised way back to the, his ancestors. Now, before we go on, I want to mention that these promises were for the Israelites. They were a specific group of people at a specific time for a specific purpose. He promised to provide them and care, protect them, provide for them and protect them because he had chosen them for the Messiah to come out of. He had to protect them. This does not mean that if we obey the Ten Commandments, we're never going to get sick, we're going to live long lives, we're going to have large families, because we know that's not true. See, Jesus told us as his followers, we are, we're not only going to suffer, we're going to be hated. Look at John 15 on your verse sheet. It says, if the world hates you, then know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, God gave his people of Israel a specific promise at a specific time for a specific purpose. But we have a promise as well. We have a new covenant that we have in Christ. And we have promises too. And we're promised a land. And our land 
will last throughout eternity. And that's the new covenant we have through Christ. Let's continue reading. I'm going to start in Exodus 24, and I'm just going to read the first eight verses. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come, to near, come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of the oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and he said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, we've done a whole lot of studying about covenants in the last couple of years, especially we studied Genesis, and now we're in Exodus. And we've learned that for any conditional, we learned there were two kinds of covenants. There were conditional and unconditional. And this is a conditional covenant. And we learned that for any conditional covenant to be established, both had to be confirmed, it had to be confirmed by both parties. And that's what we're seeing here. See, chapters 20 through 23, they're laying out the terms of this covenant. Chapter 24 is telling us how it's being confirmed. I read one commentary that kind of that took verses 1 through 8 and said it's kind of like the very first worship service. He said there's a call to worship. There's a reading of God's word. There's a confession of faith and obedience and commitment to obeying God's word. And there's a sharing of a meal. And all of this is done under the oversight an appointed servant of God. It's kind of like the very first worship service that happened in Exodus. And Moses was that appointment. He was the mediator between Israel and God. He would represent the Israelites and he would go between a holy God and sinful people. I hope that reminds you of somebody. Because, you know, God shows us that we're people here. We have to honor and inspect God's holiness because he's a holy God. We can only draw near to God in his presence if we come on his terms through his appointed mediator. The Israelites had Moses and the high priests. We have Jesus and he's our high priest. He's the only mediator between God and sinful man. And why did he read these laws twice? I mean, he could have done it once. You know, I read that it was because the first time was so they could understand them and accept it. And then they would declare their intent at that point. And the second time is so that they could actually promise to obey it. And they would take a vow to confirm it. It kind of reminds me of a marriage, marriage ceremony. You know, when the, the bride comes down and the, the daddy hands are off and the minister will say, do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? And they say, I do, or I will. That's the same thing they're saying. Their, their first thing they're saying, you're, you're saying you want to make him your husband. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do. Then what do they do next? They recite their vows. They say what they're going to do in that marriage. And that's how they confirm the covenant of marriage. It's much the same as this covenant that's being confirmed here. And this, the components of this covenant had several different elements added to it. 
Moses wrote down all the laws and he built an altar. They offered burnt offerings. They offered peace offerings. And then this blood was put into a basin of the sacrifices and he sprinkled it on the altar. And that was to signify that God was one part of this covenant. And then he sprinkled it on the people that had just vowed to, to, to be a part of this covenant. And that was a sign that they are the recipients of the benefits of this covenant. So it's between the Israelites and God. Now, why all this blood? I mean, I just, it, I couldn't hardly get past it the first time I read it. He's sprinkling blood on these people, and there's blood everywhere. Well, look at Hebrews 9.22 on your verse sheet. It says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So in terms of sin and forgiveness, since the fall of man... Blood has been the basis for man's relationship with God. So without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness of sins. And there would be no access to this holy God. Look at Ephesians 1, 7 on your verse sheet. In him we have redemption through, the, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. See, there always had to be the shedding of blood. Now, even after this dramatic dramatic covenant confirmation. We're going to see later that it obviously didn't stick. They went into this pattern of disobedience. The truth is, we're just like them. We can come to church on Sunday and we do all this worship stuff and we, we vow to, we're going to obey your commandments. We do all this and we pray to him and we worship him and then we leave and before we hit the steps of the church, or at least for me, I've already done something that shows I'm disobedient. Maybe in my thoughts or something I've said or, or how he treated somebody. But when this happens, we know that we have one who did obey perfectly. And he's the one, Jesus, who shed his blood for our sins that we could be forgiven. And we only have to go back to him. I want, to follow, I want you to follow along. I'm going to read the last part of Exodus 24, starting at verse 9. Um, it says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw God of Israel, the God of Israel. There were under his feet as if it were a pavement of sapphire stones, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. I have to, I have to admit, that is the first time when I read that I had ever read that in the Bible, which is astounding to me. And then it goes on, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone, which the law and the commandments, which I have written for their instructions. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountains of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Ur are, are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let them go to them. Let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called the Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up into the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. 74 people ascended Mount Sinai to represent all of Israel in this covenant meal. Can you even imagine that? They ate with God. 
I'm just blown away. I have nothing in my life to even compare to that. And I have to admit, I had, I had a meal, I shared a meal, a lunch, with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. I'm not lying. I really did. <laughs> this is way before he got crazy. And Nicole still had crazy, you know, this curly, beautiful curly hair and this porcelain skin. And they weren't even married yet. But I ate a meal, meal with them and I was starstruck. So starstruck, I couldn't even put food in my mouth because I knew if I did, there'd be a piece of it hanging out here or some of it here. And so I just spent the entire meal just moving my food around the table or around the plate, just moving around talking. Just, and ate nothing. I can't, I, it's, it, as big as these celebrities are, it's nothing compared to what these guys did. They ate with the most high God. It says they didn't die. You know, we learn later on in Exodus 33 that if you see God, that you would be struck down. So why is that? I don't know. I don't. The commentaries just kind of went ding, ding, ding. They're like, I'm not touching that one. <laughs> the only thing I could find is that maybe they didn't fully see all of God. Maybe all of his glory. Because it did talk about his feet on the sapphire streets or whatever. Maybe that's it. Or you know what? He's God. Maybe at that moment he decided, I'm not going to strike them down because this is a big deal. This is a covenant with my chosen people. So maybe he chose not to do it because he's God and he can do that. But I really found nothing else about that. And why did he share a meal with these people? Because he's God. He could eat with anybody. See, this meal was part of his covenant confirmation. He did it so that Israelites understand that he was a willing party in this covenant. And I think he knew that if his people actually sat down and ate a meal with the God Almighty, that they might remember that when they walked off, but they didn't. But they might be, that might be in their mind when they're, when they're about to do something they're not supposed to. Oh, I just ate with God. How could I do that? That was a covenant they were never going to forget. You know, sharing a meal with someone is a way you express fellowship with them, and it shows that God desires to fellowship with his people. He desires this close relationship with each one of us. He's even given us a meal to remember that we belong to him by covenant. We call it the Lord's Supper, and it reminds us of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, but you know what? We also look forward to what's called the wedding supper of the Lamb. Look at Revelation 19.9 on your verse sheet. It says, and the angel said to me, he's talking to John who wrote Revelation. He said, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. We will be invited to share a meal with Christ, our perfect Lamb. Can you imagine that? It's not even Tom Cruise. It's going to be huge. And we get to partake in it. And then after this meal that God had with these people, Moses ascended to the top of the mountain so that he could meet with him. And he's going to give him those iconic stones of tablet with the Ten Commandments on it. And he's going to receive those commandments on that stone. And it was going to be signified that this covenant had been confirmed. And it says that Moses took Joshua. We're going to hear more about Joshua later on. Joshua is actually his assistant. And he's the one that's actually going to take them into the promised land. So he went with him a ways, and then Moses went on by himself, and he stayed there for 40 days and 40 nights. You know, chapter 24 reminds us that like the Israelites, one time we were separated from God because of our sin. 
And therefore, we had to keep a distance from a holy God. But then God, in his grace, he provided a sacrifice of atonement through the blood of his covenant. For the Israelites, that covenant was came through the blood of the lamb. For us, it comes from the blood of Jesus. And once our sins are forgiven, we enjoy fellowship with God too. We can sit down and enjoy sitting at his table with him as we share the Lord's Supper. And later on it says, we're gonna sit at the table with Jesus and eat at the wedding supper of the Lamb. You know, as some are celebrating this week, they're celebrating the Passover and they're doing out of sheer obedience to God's law. But guess what? Not us. This weekend, we're celebrating, we're celebrating the Easter. It's the resurrection, the death and resurrection of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. He came to fulfill that law. He came to abolish that law by shedding his blood, and he established a new covenant with all of us. My prayer is that with these truths in mind, your Easter celebration this weekend will be even deeper than it's ever been. And I just pray that as you celebrate your risen Savior, you remember that he has sealed this covenant with you as well. Happy Easter. Please pray with me. Precious Father, we love your plan. We love that you wanted us to uh, see in your Old Testament how we're to live and what you're gonna be doing for us, Lord, that you did for us through your son. Lord, I thank you that you sent your son to cover all of our sins. And Lord, I pray that we live like that that we live knowing that we've, we've already won the victory. You won it for us, Lord. And I pray that we live like victors. Lord, I pray that as we go out and celebrate this weekend, this Easter, this resurrection of your beloved son, Lord, that we would um, share it with all those around us. It would be all over our face and all of our actions. In Christ's name I pray this, amen.